0: Following messages from North Place Church. We hope the next few moments will allow you to experience Christ, community, and compassion. For more about North Place Church, find us online at NorthplaceChurch.com. We have been in a four-week conversation that has been intentionally started first and foremost to help hungry spiritual seekers. Understand the basics of starting the Christian faith. But we also hope, as we lead into a strategic season around Easter, that it will equip the rest of us. Even if you don't have questions that we are raising, your friends do, your family does, your coworkers do. And this conversation can help them, it can help you better understand them and equip you to have meaningful conversations about faith with them. Andy Stanley, as I've said every week, and his team at North Point Church in Alpharetta, Georgia, are on the cutting edge of having these kinds of conversations. And they've equipped us with the small group curriculum that we are using, but they've also helped us, equip us to have this conversation with the church as a whole. And we are borrowing from the experience when they took this conversation into their whole church last September in Georgia. And here's the premise. Faith has a starting point. We know that everything has a starting point. Businesses have a starting point. Your educational journey had a starting point. Churches have a starting point. Ours was 93 years ago. And we will be a part of the starting point church for a life giving church in San Diego. Churches have starting points. In partnership with Mike and Sky, we will watch that literally happen. But we don't think about faith having a starting point. Once upon a time or way back when you weren't sure what to believe or you didn't believe anything and somebody came along and said, here, believe this. And more than likely it was a parent or somebody that took you to the church, the temple, or the synagogue. And somewhere there they told you what to believe. They handed you a framework of faith. And so you were a kid and you said, you know, I believe in Santa Claus. I believe in the tooth fairy. I believe in Jesus. And because you were young, it wasn't that hard to reconcile life and all of those things together. And then you had high school. And you started to see a little compromise in the term of your lifestyle. And then you hit college and what you were taught as a kid in church wasn't lining up with what your professor was telling you. And and then all of a sudden you just kind of left all of that. It wasn't that important. And all that faith stuff and Sunday school lessons... And then here you are, you've become an adult, you have kids, and you've come back into what it means to live responsibly, and you're starting to ask all the questions. So most of us have come back to starting to live responsibly. Some of us are in their 50s and still don't know what that looks like, so, but we're glad you're here today. This is a good journey to be on, to, to understand what responsible living looks like. You, you have been on this journey some point along the way, and you experienced this growing gap between what you were taught as children... And what you experienced as adult. And people respond to this gap one of two ways. Some people respond to this gap about faith. And they just say, I'm going to believe it no matter what. And when people come along and raise questions about the Christian faith. Or they raise up questions about the Bible. You just kind of go stick your head in the sand. Because listening to those questions make you uncomfortable. Because it starts to erode your faith and undermine your faith. So you just act like those questions aren't really there. And you just say bad things about the people that ask those questions because they're bad people. Anything that anybody would ask any question at all about God or the Bible, uh, especially that has any kind of doubt in it at all, you you're just going to believe no matter what. So you stick your head in the sand, act like those people are bad, and those questions that they ask are not legitimate. And then there's another group of people who say, I, "No, I have those questions, and I see them, and I see this gap, and because this gap is so wide." Uh, what I was taught as a child isn't holding up under real life. And I don't know if I can keep on believing anymore. And so what do you do with that? What do you do with that gap? What we decided to do in this conversation for the last several weeks is just to try to figure out what it would look like to start over. I mean, if you wipe the slate clean as adult and you can, you came back to it as if you knew nothing and you came to the Christian faith with a blank slate, and I know it, you can't, Obviously, get a fully blank slate. We're tied to traditions and belief systems that are a part of who we are. I get that. I understand that. But for as best as we possibly can, try to ask the question, if we were coming at this knowing nothing, what would it look like to start over in the Christian faith as an adult? And this is week four, so if you missed the first three weeks, um, they are available online. They, you can listen to audio, you can watch the video, and, and, and some people, you know, you can catch up, but some people often say, man, I wish so-and-so my family had heard that message. Well, they can. Lead them there. Or I have people say to me, man, my sister all won't listen to, you, to me. She might listen to you. You say it better than I do. And so they will be there even after this uh, series is completed. They will be there for you to take the journey uh, even beyond Today. today we're going to tackle some of the things that we've wrestled with at some point in our life. Most all of us have. It's the role of rules in the context of faith and religion. Because religion, all religion has this pesky thing called Rules. In Islam, there is the five pillars of Islam. In Christianity, there's the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount, and there are several other passages of Scripture that we've labeled different things that kind of lay some boundaries to what uh, it looks like to live the Christian life. Sikhism has its rules. Buddhism has its list. Everybody from every religion has their various religious rules list. And regardless of your religious background, you probably have the rules. And human nature is, because we don't get to make the rules, we butt up against them. Because we don't get to make the rules, we push back against them. I don't care what religion you're from, Islam, Sikhism, Buddhism, Christianity, you don't get to be the rule maker. And human nature is, when I don't make the rules, I kind of play the contrarian and I push back and I butt up against those rules. It's human nature. I grew up in a Christian home. Um, I have a Christian faith. I'm now the pastor of a Christian church, so I'm going to spend a few moments poking a little fun at us as Christians. Uh, There's a lot of fun that could be poked at the others, but I'm not one of them, so I'm not going to poke fun at that. I'm going to just leave it all right here in the house, leave it with us. Christianity is weird in, in the sense that we have all of these different versions of it. you got two big divisions. you got Catholicism and Protestantism, and there are thousands of different versions of what Protestantism looks like And as it fleshes out the Christian faith. Some of you grew up Baptist, and you had your set of Baptist rules that you were supposed to live by to please God, and then others of us grew up Pentecostal, and we had more rules than anybody. Okay? The Pentecostals couldn't do anything. Okay, Uh, you know we just had all kinds of rules. And then as a Pentecostal looking out the window at Presbyterians and Methodists, we just thought they didn't have any rules. You know they got to do whatever they wanted to do. They had all the fun. And so, but the one thing in my little town is, you know, on Friday night after the game, the Presbyterians had a dance and the Methodist church had a dance. And and the Pentecostals we couldn't dance. Dance Dancing send you to hell. So we couldn't dance. And the good thing in our little town, the Baptist church was concerned and they told their kids dancing would send them to hell. So Baptists and Pentecostals got together on Friday night and sent their kids to an alternative after the football game that was not dancing because if you move your body wrong to music, you're going to go to hell. So you got Baptist rules and Pentecostal rules, and you got Methodist rules. You got all these different kinds of rules. Whatever religion you came up with, you know, you got. You got rules. But, and then there's Catholicism, which is its own different little breed of Christianity. But the reality is, whether you come from a Pentecostal background or a Protestant background or a Catholic background, there were enough rules to pass around shame, guilt, and judgment for all of us. Everybody had enough shame, guilt, and judgment. But the question is, what's the deal with all the rules? It's such a big part of religion. And it's the rules that we bump up against. It's the rules that we rebel against. It's part of the reason why you left your childhood faith. It's, it's why you decided to n- not to go back to church because you got fed up with some preacher or some church telling you how to live your life, especially when the way they said you needed to live it was diametrically opposed to what was culturally acceptable. I mean, the culture says you can do this and you can do that and everybody's fine with it. Now you go to church and there's some preacher telling you, even though this is politically correct and it's okay, if you're going to be a real follower of Jesus, you can. You need to do this. And you just got tired of hearing that. The rules just became so cumbersome, it didn't seem to work in a real world, so you just kind of went and did your own thing. Let's, let's answer some of the questions today, and, and here, here they are. What is the relationship between rules and religion? And more specifically, what is the relationship between the rules and a loving God? And I want to begin answering those questions by this statement, rules always assume a relationship wherever you you are accountable to a list of rules There is the assumption that those rules are given because of an established relationship. That's true in church, religion. That's true in a secular sense. Wherever you are accountable to a set of rules, you are in a relationship. And to help you understand this and to get this discussion going, I'm going to borrow from some of Pastor Andy's categories this morning. And if you can come up with better categories to help you remember this, that's fine. But these are simple enough that they help the conversation. There is a family model of rules... And then there is a club model of rules. And here's what we mean by the family model. You were born into a family and your parents started making rules. Okay? They didn't make rules to make you a part of the family. They gave you the rules after you were a part of the family. They established the rules that you were a kid that you grew up under. And do you remember being in your house when your rules seemed to be stricter than the rules of your friends? And you would say to your parents, well, so-and-so's doing this. And they would say, well, I'm not so-and-so's daddy. And this is our house. And you're living in our house. And these are the rules of our house. You, you, You remember hearing that? Because your rules are set because your mom and daddy care about how you represent their family name. You didn't get the rules to get their family name. You got their family name. And they said, these are the rules that go with having this family name. Okay, hold on to that. That's the family model. Now, because you were a part of the family, you got the rules. Now, what's interesting about the whole parent thing is parents only set rules for their own kids. I mean, it'd be nice as a parent set rules for somebody else's kid sometime, especially when you're living next to Dennis the Menace. It'd be nice to put your neighbor's kid on restriction and tell him, you're grounded till we move. You've got to stay in your house until we move. When we move, you can come back outside again. Or how odd would it be if you come home one night as a parent and your neighbor's kids got, um, you know, they, they're up really late at night uh, and their TV's flickering, it's 11.30, and your kid's been in bed for three hours and uh, they got their homework done and you call your neighbor and say, let me talk to your daughter. Honey, you need to go to bed. It is past your bedtime. It is not good. That doesn't work because parents set the rules. That's the family model for their family. Now, the second model is the club model. Uh, and this is the model where you agree to keep A certain number of rules in order to get into the relationship. So when you join, they give you a contract and you read over it. And if you agree to keep all the rules, then you sign the contract and you're in. And if you don't keep the rules after you sign the contract, then you are out. This could be like an employer-employee relationship. When you go to get a new job, they give you the expectations, you know, the requirements and expectations. They give you the job description. They say, you do all this. We're going to pay you. You do them extremely well. We're going to bonus you and pay you even better. But if you don't keep up your end of the bargain, you are out. This is the way fraternities work. This is the way sororities work. It's the way clubs work. But it's not the way the family model works. With the family, you get the rules after the relationship is established. In the club, you get the rules in order to establish the relationship. And just for fun, let's throw in a third category this morning. It is the neighborhood association model, the HOA and we love our HOAs. In in, in the neighborhood association model, you don't always know where you stand. You know, you're free to buy a house in the neighborhood, and you get in as long as you can buy the house, and somewhere at closing, you didn't know it, but you signed all those membership covenants that you would abide by them, and then one day, you get a letter in the mail that lets you know you've broken a covenant. I remember the way it felt when I got my first letter in the mail. I'm a redneck, okay? I grew up on a farm, and my backyard was hundreds of acres. Nobody told us how long our grass had to be or how, how our shrubs had to be or what, when we ought to paint our fence. And I got a letter in the mail that I was supposed to paint my fence. And I looked at every house in my neighborhood about fences that look worse than mine. And I wanted to know, did they get a letter too? I got a letter about my, you know, this is my piece of America. You know, I, all something rose up on the inside of me, <laughs> rose up on the inside of me. And then I started kind of pushing back and they said, oh, Mr. Jarrett, you signed that you would agree to all this stuff when you signed the closing documents on this house. And that's why you pay this, whatever, $100 a month to stay in this neighborhood. So they really can't kick you out if you don't pay. Now, they can take legal action and ultimately, but most of the time, they're not going to kick you out. You're in because you live in the neighborhood, but they can make your life so miserable you want to live somewhere else. Okay? Because that's kind of the neighborhood model. So these are the models and wherever you're accountable to a set of rules you're in a relationship of some sort they go together you can take these crazy ideas and transpose them onto religion and theology and and you begin to think about it in a more deep or deeply begin to think about it more deeply when you're confronted with these categories these three some of you think theologically and some of you think emotionally and the reason some of you think about them emotionally is because you go back to your childhood and you remember being taught a family model but in reality it was a club model you remember being taught that relationship with God came about being a part of the family but then you remember living as if you had to do something right to earn your way in And there are those of you that came in under the club model that you got to do all this stuff to get in and you never knew what it was really like to be a part of a family as it related to faith. And so the question is, which one is it? What does God want? Is it the family model, the club model? Is it the HOA or neighborhood association model? Regardless of your religious background, if you have any relationship Uh, any interest in a relationship with God at all, you're going to wrestle with the question at some point, how does my behavior line up with what God expects of me? What gets me in? And what's going to get me kicked out? And am I ever able to really know? So let's wrestle with this this morning, going back to one of the oldest set of rules, laws, that has ever been given. It's not the oldest in human history, but one of the oldest and it is shared, There's uh, there, this, this law is in all the three religions we've been talking about the last few weeks, Christianity, Islam, even Islam, and Judaism, this law is there. And we call it the Ten Commandments. And in 1446 B.C., God visited Moses and gave him this law at Mount Sinai. We call it the Ten Commandments. And most of us that grew up in church, off and on, our whole life, would have a hard time naming all Ten Commandments to save our life. And a portion of us would have a more difficult time telling you where in the Bible it is located. We know it's there somewhere, but it would take us a little while to find it. So today I want you to know a little more about the Ten Commandments, but, but I want you to know where they're found. So everybody say Exodus 20. I'm going to give you a pop quiz in a moment on where the Ten Commandments are found. Where are they found? That's not the pop quiz. I'm going to have to put a little space in between you when I ask you again, but, but remember that. Before we look at them, let me tie in our conversation from last week about Abraham to what we're doing this week. We said that all the three of the major religions in the world all go back to Abraham. Abraham is huge, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Uh, Abraham is huge in the religions of the world because it seems like the, many of the major religions of the world spring from Abraham. And if, if you think about it this way, think of if you've got a, a piece of paper and Abraham's at the top and you draw a line to the left, you have Ishmael and down from Ishmael, you have the Arab nations. And if you have Abraham and you draw a line over to the right, you have, um, you have Isaac And and out of Isaac, he has a son named Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons, which eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. So at the bottom, you have the nation of Israel. And so you kind of see how it begins to flow. All these religions come together at the sons of Abraham and, and Sarah. And then they begin to separate at the sons of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham had a promise. That he would have nations as his descendants, but he doesn't even have a child. And somewhere in the course of events, Abraham and Sarah decide God's not. this is not happening. It's probably never going to happen. We need to help him out along the way. And so they decide, well, Sarah's got a handmaiden named Hagar. If, if, if Abraham has a child with him, her, she can have children, so at least we'll have a son. And, and when you try to take God's plans into your own hands, it usually doesn't work out well. Uh, and Abraham and Sarah got ahead of God, and sure enough, she conceived like God promised she would and she had a child so Hagar had Ishmael and and Sarah had Isaac so you got that little slide that little picture I just showed you from Ishmael came the Arab nations from Isaac through Jacob and the 12 tribes comes the nation of Israel. We know what we know about uh, the connection between Ishmael and the Arab nations. 600 years after Jesus, the prophet Muhammad comes along and makes that connection of Ishmael back to the Arab nations. And the Jews have always had Isaac as the blessed son of their race, their tribe, their people. And one of those 12 sons of Jacob was named Joseph. Now, in order to get where i'm going let me give you a little you got to get you got to get a little old testament history okay joseph was the favored son of his father because because he was the youngest kind of the youngest son and his brothers were jealous and they decided to kill him. And they, they, they had a little compassion at the last minute and sold him into slavery. He wound up through slavery becoming the prime minister of the nation of Egypt. And through a series of events, he reconciles with his brothers. There's a famine in the land. And because there's enough food in Egypt, he sends out an email and text blast to all of his family to hurry up and get to Egypt because he can take care of them. And so that's how all of Abraham's family descendants got into Egypt. Well, Joseph dies. And there's a Pharaoh that becomes uh, head of Egypt that knows not Joseph, the Bible said. Forgets all about all the favor of Joseph and how Egypt loved Joseph. And, and then the nation of Israel begins to populate. And so people go to Pharaoh and say, hey, these Hebrews are multiplying like rabbits and they're going to overtake the nation of Egypt. There are going to be more Hebrews than there are Egyptians if you don't do something. And so the nation of Egypt enslaved all Hebrews and for 400 years... The people of God, the Israelites, were slaves in Egypt. Four hundred years. They would get together and they would tell their children stories about Abraham. And the promises of God on Abraham's life and and how God was going to bless the world through Abraham. And when you are a slave 300 years into that 400 year slavery, it seems like Abraham's stories of hope and what God is going to do through Abraham seems like a lie but a fairy tale at best. But the elders kept telling their kids the story generation after generation because they were trying to instill hope in the next generation that one day, someday, God is going to keep His Word to Abraham. And one day, someday, Moses shows up on the scene and he says to Pharaoh, what does he say? Let my people go. go. And what does Pharaoh say? No. And then God works through Moses and kind of suspends the law of nature and there's this this plague of of frogs and water turns to blood and there's this amazing battle between the sorcery of Egypt and what God is doing through Moses. And and eventually, you know the story, Moses leads the nation of Israel away from Egypt and, um, and Moses leads the people out and they end up at Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, he goes to get the law. Now, you need to remember this. It's important that all they know is slavery. They have a little civil society, but it's what they picked up as slaves in Egypt. They have no personal relationship with God. They think like slaves. They've been slaves for generations. There is no freedom. And they go to Mount Sinai. God gives Moses some law, some rules to live by, the Ten Commandments. And where can you find those Ten Commandments? You're brilliant. So you passed the pop quiz. I gave you five minutes and you still remembered. I want to read to you the prelude in Exodus 20. What is said right before the Ten Commandments? We jump down to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 verse 3 and start reading. You shall have no other gods before you. And I don't think we pay enough attention to what God says in the prelude before the Ten Commandments. Listen to what he said. And God spoke these words, Exodus 20 verse 1 and 2a. I am the Lord your God Who? Now wait a minute. He opens up before he gives any rules, and he says, "I am the Lord your God." For him to be their God means they are his people. And can you imagine four hundred years of slavery, and, and and all they hear is these fairy tales about Abraham, and they're like, "Well, how did you become our God? We haven't done anything. When did this start? How did this happen?" And he comes and says, in an announcement before the rules, "I am the Lord your God." who, and, and, and then it goes on in verse number 2, who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. It's as if God is saying I'm the Lord your God who has done something for you when you have done nothing for me. I am the Lord your God who sent a deliverer into your darkest time when you had given up hope. When Abraham was nothing more than a fairy tale you told your children so they wouldn't lose hope. When nobody expected it, I sent a deliverer into Egypt. I drug you out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God who delivered you and I have done something miraculous and spectacular for you even though you've done nothing to or for me well God we don't know what to do we don't know what the rules are yet we we don't know we don't know what it means to be your people and so this is what God says I'm about to give you a list of rules I'm gonna I'm gonna show you what is expected for you to be in this family but before I give you the list of family rules I declare to you you are my family You need to understand that. Before there was ever a list of rules, he declared, You are my family. This is a family conversation. I am the Lord your God. Now, here's the rules if you're going to carry my name. Okay, that's important that you grasp that. The relationship was established before the rules were given. All right, so so here we go. Moses um, uh, does all this stuff, and then Pharaoh, after, you know, Pharaoh. Has this um, battle going on with Moses and, and 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 something else is going on? God tells them to do something. Okay, Moses instructs the people. Look, before you go to bed tonight, I want you to eat a lamb like you always do, which is very common in your house. But I want you to I want you to take the blood of the lamb and I want you to put it on the doorpost of your house and on the side walls of the door. But Moses, why why are we going to do this? You know, we eat a lamb all the time. And isn't it kind of odd to take that blood and just wipe it on the doorpost? And why are we going to do this? And Moses just says, God's not explaining everything right now. He just says, trust me. And that night, the death angel passes over. And all of the houses that had been obedient and applied the blood of the lamb to the doorpost of their home, the death angel passed over And death came to a lot of homes that night in Egypt. And it was so bad that Pharaoh called Moses in and he said, Look, get out of here. Take all of your stuff, even take some of the stuff we have, and just get out of here. Leave us alone. Moses tells them to pack. We're leaving. They said, You mean we've been here 400 years and we're leaving tomorrow? Yeah. How do we know? God says, Trust me. It's as if God was saying, I just want you to trust me because in trusting me, you will find your deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And to this day, Jews still celebrate that historical event as the Passover. And when they do, they're not celebrating the Ten Commandments. They're not celebrating the law. They're celebrating the night God whispered to a nation and just said, trust me. Weeks later, they gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai and God says, okay, Now that you trusted me, and you realize you're a part of the family, I want to give you some rules to live by to be a part of this family. And he gives the first commandment, verse 3 of Exodus 20, You shall have no other gods before me. Here's the point. This this is what I want you to know. The Ten Commandments were a confirmation of, not a condition of, Israel's relationship with God. The rules were a confirmation of the relationship not a condition of the relationship you need to get that in your heart if you've ever tried to read the old testament you'll know you'll get to genesis well, that's kind of fun you know you got noah and ark and there's a lot of fun stuff in genesis and you get to exodus and you got the 10 commandments and there's some really cool things and and exodus and then you get to leviticus man leviticus is when people quit okay Leviticus is tough when you start reading through and, and then you wade through Leviticus and if you make it to Numbers and Deuteronomy you get in there and saying, haven't they already said all that Aren't we re- didn't they say all that in Genesis and Exodus So is, are they just re- repeating themselves and then if you keep going you eventually get to the prophets and there's some people that think the prophets are crazy because they too keep repeating themselves and they always sound like they are mad they are angry because they're saying nation of Israel God said to live this way And you're not living this way. And he's going to discipline you for not living this way. And then at the end of the book, God comes back and announces, my mercy is everlasting. My love is long-suffering. You are my people. I'll never quit on you. I'm going to be faithful to you. I mean, it's that same message in Hosea and Jeremiah and Isaiah. There's God's love, God's plan, the disobedience of the people, the announcement of judgment from the prophet. And then God reminds them of his faithfulness. They are his people. He will not give up on them. And you find that on and on and on. You know what that is? It's God... Revealing the parental heart that he has because you read through the prophets, it's almost like God saying, One, yeah. two, <laughs> three, and one time he did put them in time out, 70 years. In the nation of Babylon, they were held in captivity because of their disobedience. And he gave them a chance. Did you learn your lesson? Brought them back home out of captivity. But the point that is reiterated over and over and over again, you are disobedient to me, but I am faithful to you when you are unfaithful to me. Here's here's what I want you to know. The history of Israel is the history of God revealing that he doesn't work on the club model he works on the family model. With God, relationship precedes rules. God opts for the family model over the club model. I'll say it again. Rules are a confirmation of, not a condition of, my relationship with God. And guys that are running the screens, I'm going to skip a lot of the verses I have. And I want you to go to the last one in John 1.12. And I, I want you to get ready to to put that up, right before we close. We're a pet family. We love pets. I mean, we we our dogs become a part of our family. We have a little house dog, and we have a big lab that's just about to turn a year old, and he chews up everything. You know, sprinkler heads and couch cushions outside, wires. He um, chews up everything, and I've had labs my whole life, and you just kind of know that comes with the territory, but we still love the dog. I have You know, I just, I want to make this announcement because it's funny. You know, my dog's name, I'm a pastor. You know, my dog's name is Deacon. (laughs) That's his name. And his, on his AKC registration papers, his official name is Pastor's Favorite Deacon. So if I have any elders here, please do not be offended. Uh, You know, I still love you. But uh, anyway, when I, if I go to field trials with my dog, they're going to announce the name officially, Pastor's Favorite Deacon. And Deacon comes up. But we love our dog. He's a part of our family. Do you think I have a fence in my backyard because I hate my dog? Is that why there's a fence there? See, my daughter loves my dog. My dog, I think, likes my daughter more than he likes me. She comes home after day after school and plays with that dog. She wrestles with him. When I take him with me to school and she gets out, I have to roll the window up because the first time I didn't, he got halfway out of the truck window trying to go to the door with her because he didn't want her to leave the truck. He loves her. If, if... uh, I just said, you know what? Keeping this dog in this half-acre pen here is ludicrous. It's not fair. It's not right. And if we really love this dog, we're not going to keep him inside this fence. We're going to let him run. What's going to happen? He's going to wind up somewhere one day. We won't find him. He's going to get hurt. He's going to get run over. There's a fence in my backyard because I love my dog. That's why there's a fence there. I'm not trying to keep my dog from anything. I'm not trying to rob my dog of life. I'm trying to provide the greatest environment for my dog to have the longest life, live to its fullest potential, and bring the greatest joy to my family. And there's a fence in my backyard because that dog does not know what is out there that could potentially harm him, that could be devastating to him. So there's a fence in my backyard. And my dog's digging. And when he digs outside of my fence... And Addie comes home from school one day and she walks outside and comes into me crying and says, Daddy, Deacon's not in the backyard. You know what I'm going to say? Dumb dog. He should have stayed in the fence. That's what he should have done. The fence is there to protect him. Stupid dog. And is that what I'm going to say? No. My little girl crying in front of me, and, and I like the dog too. I love the dog too. My daughter and I both probably going to be crying together, get in our vehicle. In rain or shine, we're going to drive all over the neighborhood. We're going to call. We're going to yell. We're going to print posters. We're going to put them all. Deacon, come back home. Deacon, come back home. Deacon, come back home. The best place for you is to live inside this fence. That fence is there because we love you. Deacon, come back home prophets weren't drawing lines and God wasn't given Ten Commandments because He was a cosmic killjoy trying to keep you from having life. He said, if you will trust Me, you can come into relationship with Me. And when you come into relationship with Me through Jesus Christ, you become a part of the family. And if I'm going to give you My name, here is the expectations of what it means to be a part of the family. I establish these rules. I build this fence because I love you and I care for you. And all of a sudden when you understand the motivation for the rule, rules living those rules out on a day-to-day basis are no longer the obligations of a legalistic religion they almost they in reality they become an act of worship to bring honor to the father who was willing to give you his name i don't look at those lists now as a list of Thou shalt nots and don'ts like a cosmic killjoy. No, I say, there's a God in heaven who knows me better than I know myself. He, he put a fence in the backyard because he know I'd live fulfilled and healthier and happier, a longer fulfilled life for the greater good living inside this fence. But what's he going to do if I get out? He's going to chase me. He's going to pursue me. He's going to run me down because I'm his He's going he's to turn up the night. He's going to show up wherever I am. And when I'm doing things to try to, to get me to leave him alone, my attempts to try to get him to go away are not going to be successful because his mercy is everlasting. And if you read the announcement by Hosea of God's everlasting, unfailing, pursuing love, it is mind-boggling the lengths that God will go to to get you back in the fence. The role of rules. It's an expression of of love from a Heavenly Father who says, look, I'm not giving you the rules to make you a part of my family. I'm giving you rules because you trusted me and became a part of my family. And this is the way we live as a family. Now you have a choice to honor me because I gave you my name and live this way as an act of worship even when it's not popular. And oh, by the way, if you get outside the fence, I'm not going to kick the dirt and say, Dummy, should have never. No. Nope. I'm going to pursue you because I love you. And for some of you who are outside the fence right now, you feel him at this moment pursuing you. And there's a part of you that is broken on the inside, and you're so, you feel so unworthy that God would be pursuing you at this moment. And there's a part of you that just wish he would leave you alone. I've been there. I know that feeling. It all starts with trust. I want you to stand with me if you will. Prayer team, would you make yourself available today? Please? I want to read that last scripture. I ask you guys to forward to John 1, 12. Ye, yet to all who did receive Him, to those who believe in His name, who believed, not who kept the covenants, not who, this is not a, uh, you know, who... who um, who did enough stuff to get in, all those who believe in His name, Jesus, He gave them the right to become what? Children. It's a family. Children of God. Trust me. And the rules are just simply an expression of what it means to live as a family. Listen, I I know I didn't preach about God doing miraculous things, but I want to give an opportunity for you to pray today. For those of you that need God to do something miraculous in your life. Uh, Haley and I were sitting yesterday with our family in the movie The Son of God. And while we were sitting there watching the miracles of the life of Jesus fall out on a cinematic screen. Haley gets a text and, and it's, an, it's not a completed story. We don't know all the details yet. But somebody we've been praying about. Who if it all pans out the way it looks like it's going to pan out. Could be one of the greatest miracles I have ever witnessed in my life. I'm telling you. I mean, I I talk about God moving mountains. He moved a whole mountain range in this situation. Amazed Stanford medical experts. I'm just telling you, their jaws are on the floor. And when we know more details and it becomes confirmed and, and I don't have to backtrack, I'll tell you the whole deal. But right now, I'm just telling you, I feel like I am watching unfold one of the greatest miracles I have ever been a part of in my 23 years of following Jesus. I can't wait to tell it to you. But it happened because people prayed. And if you need a miracle today, these people come every Sunday to agree with you that God would move on your behalf. You're His people. That's why He does these things. For those of you that feel God pursuing you, for those of you that never had a relationship with Jesus, for those that believe in Him, He gave them the right to be called the children of God. I'm going to pray today for you and as I pray, if you need to commit or recommit your life to Jesus or if you have a miracle, a mountain you need moved and you want these people to pray with you, this could be an altar of miraculous things today and I just want you, if you need prayer while I conclude today, I'd really encourage you to come. Father, will you you move today mightily in the hearts of people? Will you draw those that have got outside the fence back home, Lord? Bring them back home. I know you're pursuing them to bring them back into relationship. And I know they sense God at work in their life today. I pray, Lord, they could humbly respond to what is happening in their heart. For those that have never known, Lord, that something will happen in the Spirit today that would bring them to a decision that said, Yes, I don't know it all, but I want to trust God today. For those that need miracles today as they respond in prayer, I pray that you would respond mightily to their call in their marriage, in their business, in their home. May you bless them and keep them. May you make your face shine down upon them. Will you be gracious to them, Lord? Turn your countenance their direction and give them peace in Jesus' name. These altars are open. Please don't miss the moment. God bless you. Thanks for listening to this message from North Place. Feel free to share or duplicate this message. If you are in the Dallas area, we would love to connect with you personally. We gather every Sunday at 8.30, 10 and 11.30 a.m.